Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. A few months ago, my family was at one of our local playgrounds. This is something my family of four loves to do. When we go to the playgrounds, uh, we have our routine. Uh, My wife and I, we have two kids. Our 10-month-old, his name is Murph. One of us will sit with Murph on uh, like under a pavilion or under a shade tree. The other will go with our two-year-old Willie to the playground and play with him. This particular day, I was with Willie. Willie loves to climb on jungle gyms. He's something of a modern-day Tarzan, a prodigy, if you will. Our family just signed a deal with Netflix. He's going to be free soloing all the jungle gyms in Jasper County. It'll be a thriller. I hope you watch. He was enthralled that we got to go to this three-story jungle gym, and he made quick work of the first story easy path through the second story. And he wanted to go through to the third story, but I wouldn't let him. And here's why. On the third story, there was a group of about six kids, likely a neighborhood biker gang. And uh, they were using words that we don't use in the Holderman house. You know what I'm saying? And uh, well, Murphy does, but the rest of us don't. He uh, came out cussing like a sailor. So Willie is a two-year-old, is in this stage where he is learning new words all the time. Not necessarily words that we're trying to teach him. He's just picking up on new words. Example, uh, sometimes my wife calls me babe. I know public displays of affection are weird at church. But uh, Willie has been picking this up and will often refer to me as babe, which is not cute in my opinion. But... uh, Last night, we're at Home Depot. Andrea is pushing the boys in the Home Depot cart with the little steering wheels. I'm searching in an aisle, and I hear from behind me, babe, babe. And it's not Andrea, it's Willie. And uh, there's a bunch of other guys around me. I can't acknowledge that's my son, because that's weird. They're going to be judging me. So I just left. I left him. So he's still at Home Depot if you go today, if if you could bring him back. Uh, But he's learning a lot of new words right now, and I don't need him going up to the third story, learning some of these choice words, going back to early childhood and dropping bombs during story time. You know what I'm saying? Can't have that. And uh, so I say, we're going to go back down, buddy. And uh, he's upset. But we start heading back down. A lady comes, and she starts addressing the issue on the third story. And I think to myself, uh, finally... Somebody is here to address their problems. One of the parents has taken responsibility. And I am shocked when uh, the oldest of the boys um, responds to her, basically telling her to shut her mouth using some expletives in his response. And I think to myself, I need to say something to this boy because that's not how you treat people. Uh, But before I can act, she responds with some of her own choice words and she starts lacing her comments with, I mean, she's putting the pro in profanity. This lady is experienced in cussing children out. Like this is the only explanation of why she was so good at it. And uh, I'm just, I'm just shocked hoping Willie's not picking up any of these words. After about 60 to 90 seconds, she asked the boy uh, a question. She says, where are your parents? And I'm just dumbfounded because I thought that was her child. She's, she's cussing out some random kid on a playground, you know? And in that moment, I had, I had the thought um, that the way of the world is just different than the way of heaven, you know? Like it is. As followers of Jesus, we're called to be in the world, but not of the world. Like we're called to go to the playgrounds, but not cuss kids out while we're there. We are called to be different. John chapter 17, Jesus prayed this over his disciples. I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, 
but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. And the apostle Paul wrote a letter to uh, the Christians in Rome. They were living in a city with far more ludicrous issues and people cussing each other out. And he said this to them, I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. As followers of Jesus, citizens of heaven, there should be a noticeable difference between the way we live and the way of the world. But you know that's not always the case. In many areas of life, the church looks far more like the world than it does like Jesus. And this should not be the case. And before I'm blamed for it, no, this is not a sermon on moralism. This is a sermon on worship, glorifying God in every aspect of our life by the way in which we live. Today's topic, wealth. Now, I don't want to brag, but I'm pretty qualified to talk talk on this subject. For starters, I'm in the top 10 richest people in the world, not too shabby, all right? And uh, my crowning achievement in the area of wealth is that I am a graduate of Financial Peace University, and I have the credentials. I went to school for this. Now, you don't care to hear my musings on the subject, uh, which is why we're going to search the scriptures today, wisdom literature in the Bible to find out how we should deal with this topic. And, And do we really need to deal with this topic? A few months ago, I was in Barbados visiting one of our impact partners, Pastor Ken Roy Clark. He is uh, the pastor of a church in Barbados and does ministry work around the Caribbean. Uh, the church that he leads there is in a very impoverished community. He is intentionally in that community to serve the poor. I was there one Sunday morning, and I'm getting ready to preach, but before I preach, I'm greeting people at the door, the bane of an introvert pastor's existence, greeting people at church. But I'm doing this because this is what I've been called to do. Shake a man's hand and never met this man before with a big smile on his face. He just looks at me and said, brother, you are well fed. And uh, since then, I've lost 15 pounds. So, (laughs) but uh, it didn't feel as like endearing as when my grandma would tell me I was a growing boy. You know, it felt a little bit different, but it turns out apparently it's actually a compliment um, because somebody in in, in the Caribbean in Barbados uh, who is well fed means they are well taken care of, means God has favor on them. Why is that the case? Because a lot of people in Barbados, most people around the world are incredibly poor, very poor. This man had one change of clothes. He slept in the shed of of another church member doing a hard work for a meager income. Now, I told you earlier that I was in the top 10 richest percent of people in the world. I don't know if that's actually true, but there are websites you can go to, put in your income, how many people are in your household, and it'll tell you where you rank in the world. And I'm guessing that because you live in this country, you will rank pretty high. We are a wealthy people who live in a wealthy place, both communally and individually. Communally, our infrastructure is amazing compared to the rest of the world's standards. And I know you've driven down I-44 in Oklahoma, not necessarily a description of amazing that we would shoot for, but that we can drive on public roads, that we can go into convenience stores if we need to go to the restroom and get water for free in many places. These are things that are unheard of in other countries. Individually, that we own our own home. Some of us do own our own cars, that some of our kids have their own bedrooms, that we have refrigerators and freezers stocked with food. In most parts of the world, these are luxuries. 
To us, they're commonplace. We are a wealthy people who live in a wealthy place. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but we do need to address the topic of wealth. Lucky for us, the Bible addresses it quite a bit. It's one of the most talked about subjects in the scriptures, over 2,000 verses. So I just need to let you know, we'll be here through the end of third hour. Uh, it's gonna be a little longer today. Now we cannot address every single uh, topic today, which is a dangerous approach to preaching because with a topic like wealth, where the Bible speaks so much about it, you could really make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. Last week after I preached, I was in the lobby and one of my neighbors came up to me. We don't know each other all that well. She lives down the road from me. And uh, she came up to me and she goes, wow, this is wild because I used to think that you were a criminal and now I find out you're a preacher. And uh, I was like, hold on, what? What do you mean? And uh, we, she explained herself and I'm not a criminal, but I'll just leave you in suspense as to what the story was. But I tell you that because there are preachers, people who claim to be people of God who are criminal in the way they handle and preach on this subject. So here is my beg of you. Would you study this for yourself? Outside of the sermon that is preached today, you need to search the scriptures for wisdom on wealth because you really could make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. If you want the Bible to tell you to be rich, I mean, turn to the book of Malachi and let the floodgates open, baby. Come on. If you want the Bible to tell you to be poor, I know a rich young ruler who you should, well, not follow in his example. You want the story of financial redemption? We know a wee little man, don't we? Stories of financial corruption? Go talk to Ananias and Sapphira, but hurry for they won't be there long. If you don't get that joke, they lied about their wealth and died on the spot. So don't lie about your wealth. I wanna give you the context today of the scriptures that we will be studying. I want you to think father having conversation with son, mother with daughter, mentor with mentee, wisdom in Wealth. We're primarily in the wisdom literature of the Bible, and I want to approach the Bible by asking questions. The first question, how should I make money? Notice, the question is not how can I make money? You need to consult Forbes for that. I'm not great at making money. How should I make money? We're talking about holiness and our financial earnings. Solomon said this in Proverbs 6, 6 make money through hard work. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. I first learned the principle of this proverb when I went to work for my grandpa, John. It was about 10 years old. Like many young boys who had yet to have been called to it, hard work was not a virtue in my life. But then my grandpa gave me a push mower in the hot days of summer and said, go. I started mowing his rental properties for him while he parked a lawn chair underneath a shade tree sipping on his lemonade. You know what I'm saying? And uh, if I ever took a break or to get a sip of water, uh, he would just holler from his shade tree, back to work, sluggard. And uh, no, he didn't do that. He was a very kind man. But he did make sure I worked hard and did a good job. And he was gracious enough to make sure the work day ended in time that we could go to grandma's house for a bowl of Neapolitan ice cream. I loved working with my grandpa. It was where I learned the value of hard work. And the best part of the day is when he would hand me a 20 or a 50, sometimes a $100 bill for the hard work that I did for him. And I have to confess to you, my church, that I don't think I paid taxes on that money. So I'm sorry, I was 10. I didn't know any better. 
With my grandpa, I learned this. Lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. My grandpa was the hardest worker I've ever known. We have a lot of hard workers here at Christ Church. A lot of people who work with their hands, a lot of teachers in the school districts, a lot of people who build homes, a lot of people who lead meetings, a lot of people who manage facilities, a lot of people who help heal others' bodies. We have a lot of people who work hard. And it is right and good that you earn an income for the work that you do. While we're on the subject of hard work, though, I know there are a lot of people who do work hard who don't earn an income. I think of stay-at-home parents who work hard, not necessarily for an income, but for their children's well-being. I think of students in the classroom who not necessarily earn an income, although some of your parents pay you to make good grades, and you're spoiled. But that's my opinion. Uh, so, but you could work hard to earn good grades or to possibly earn a scholarship for the hard work that you do, you know? Hard work is a virtue. But here's the thing, as followers of Jesus, we don't work hard to make money, we don't work hard to get scholarships. The primary reason for the way, the reason that we work hard is this, we work hard to glorify God. Like I said earlier, this is not a sermon on moralism, this is a sermon on worship. The way in which we work reflects the image of our working God, who has worked hard, and we do so as well, to honor and glorify him. The best part is, well, not the best part, but a side part is we make money a lot of the times that we do that, so it's good. Apostle Paul writing to Christian slaves who had received no paycheck or salary for their work said this in Colossians 3, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. We're working for God's glory, which means we have to work in the way of God. So the second answer to the question, how should I make money, is this. Make money with godly integrity. Solomon wrote, tainted wealth has no lasting value, but right living can save your life. The Lord will not let the godly go hungry, but he refuses to satisfy the craving of the wicked. And I don't need to belabor this point much for I'm sure you understand it, but I will offer this encouragement. Do the work of Christ in the way of Christ. If you sell cars, don't inflate prices for ungodly gain. If you're a landlord, keep the place in good condition for your tenants who are children of God. If you're a builder, don't cut codes or ignore corners. If you're a minister, be close to the Father rather than acting like you are. The primary purpose of our work is not to make money, but to glorify God and bring value to people. So many people in the culture in which we live work not to bring value to God, but also they work to steal valuables from other people. Not so with us. The way in which we work should be with a godly integrity that does not steal value from people, but brings and adds value to them. This is the way we will work. Third, on the question of how should I make money? Make money without losing freedom. I'm talking about debt. Wisdom isn't always a call to action. It's often a call to reflect and remember the way in which the world around us works. Solomon wrote, the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is slave to the lender. Earlier this week, my friend and coworker, Allison, who leads a right here, right now ministry, she works with a lot of people in financial pain. She showed me something evil, an interest rate of 119%. Debt can enslave. It can enslave. And the loss is freedom. Now, full transparency, 
I have a home mortgage and a couple of credit cards. My home is modest, my interest rate is low, and I pay off my credit card sometimes before the charges post to my account. Type A about that. There are examples in scripture of people borrowing items or money. But in every acceptable context, what is borrowed is small and what is borrowed is paid back. Only about 10% of references to debt in scripture are viewed in a positive light. In many scriptural references to debt, freedom is lost. And this should be avoided at all cost. In Christ, you were bought with a price and your debt has been paid Let's not become slaves again by taking on financial debt that we cannot pay back. Let's be satisfied in God, not losing our freedom to greed. Let's work hard, work with integrity, and not become slaves to debt. And now, because you've lived in this way, your bank account is just busting at the seams. Like, you feeling good? Feel real good, right? Bank account is full. So the second question we're asking the wisdom of God is this. What should I do with my money? What should I do with the money I have? First and foremost, the wisdom of God says this. Honor God with the money that you have. Solomon wrote, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce. Throughout history, the people of God have offered their first fruits to him. This language points back to the agrarian nature of God's people who would take the first harvest of grain or livestock Now, we started a garden this spring in our family, and you better believe that when that first tomato is ripe, we'll be bringing it here to church and dropping it in the offering basket as our first fruits offering to God. The reality is most of us don't have crop or livestock to bring to church. And if you do, maybe just give it to a neighbor or something. You don't need to bring it here or sell it and bring the money here. The first fruits is equivalent to the tithe, which is the first 10% of what you produce. And because the work of most of us produces a paycheck, that would be the first 10% of our paycheck. The people of God have always been called to give as an offering to him 10%, to give as a tithe, the first 10% of our income to God. My family, many others have chosen to give that money to the place where we call home here, Christ Church of Orinoco. Some of you in the room might be thinking, man, I am like 18 years old. My 10% is like 10 bucks a month. I mean, is it really going to make that big of a, a difference here at church? And I want you to stop that thinking. Does the money that is given here to church keep the lights on, the AC running? Yes, it does. Does it pay the salaries of the ministers? Yes, it does, and thank you very much. But what it primarily does, the tithe, whether it's 10 bucks, 100 bucks, 1,000 bucks, is it brings honor and glory to God. Remember, this is a sermon on worship. We give because we trust God. Speaking of trust, I know that some of you in the room have probably found yourself in a place where you're not sure if you can afford that 10%. I want to ask you to study the scriptures on this subject before you act, but I want to encourage you to trust God in your giving. Even when it's tight, even when the numbers don't make sense, trust God. And the baseline of what God calls us to give is 10%. We tithe to worship God. Secondly, the wisdom of God is this. Be generous with the money that you have. Wait a second. We just talked about the tithe not 10 seconds ago. Now we're supposed to give more money away? Well, that was the tithe and this is the offering. So it's fun. No, this is the offering, this extra generosity is not necessarily a designated amount or place of giving. I like to call this creative giving. Uh, Some of you in the church do this really well. Some of you give above and beyond simply to the general operating budget of the church. Others of you to right here, right now, where you bring a dollar per person 
from your family and give so we can help people in need. Some of you choose a missionary or an organization that resonates with your your family's passions to support the work that they are doing. Some of you have uh, let people live in your, your homes for free or given people cars. There are all kinds of ways to be generous with what you have. And if you've ever been generous, then you know this to be true. It's really fun to give, right? Solomon said, a generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. It is really fun to give. So church, pick something you're passionate about, find somebody in need, and man, bless them with what you have. Third, save the money you have. There is biblical wisdom in saving some of your money. The wise store up choice food and olive oil, but fools gulp theirs down. Dishonest money dwindles away, but whoever gathers money little by little makes it grow. And with this money that you save, you could save up for a big purchase so you don't have to take on enslaving debt. This money could be saved in case of emergencies. This money could be invested so that you can put it towards something you're passionate about and in our country gain interest that works for you rather than against you. I am the beneficiary of my family's wives' savings, my grandparents, who put money into a college savings account that I was able to use when scholarships did not uh, come through. My great aunt, who was like a grandma to me, who when I was born, she put money into an investment account. When I was 18, my parents told me about that account, told me to use it wisely, and that became the down payment on our home. Because you save, you can be prepared for emergencies. Because you save, you can be prepared to bless. There is wisdom godly wisdom in saving some of the money that you have. And lastly, on what should I do with my money? I want to say this because I think the scriptures say it. Be content with the money you have. In studying for this sermon, I read a proverb that describes America to a T. One person pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. Confession time. Materialism is a struggle for me. It's an area in which I have sinned and an area in which I regularly face temptation. I'm sure I'm not the only one in the room. I think I face this temptation so often because of the culture in which I live. A culture that says you will be satisfied with bigger, better, and more stuff. And even though I know that's not true, it's still still the cultural pull on my life to get more stuff. I mean, think about this as our cultural irony. Both bankruptcies and storage units are on the incline, meaning we keep buying stuff that we cannot afford even though we don't have a place to put it. Bigger, better, more. And I don't know why, but maybe it's because it feels right and holy. But when I find out that someone I know who seems to have a meager and humble existence is a millionaire, I just immediately have respect for them, you know? Not necessarily because they made the money, but because the money hasn't made them. It's inspiring. I'll use this word, it's holy. And it's not just rich people who can be content. That gentleman who told me I had a dad bod in Barbados, you remember him? One of the poorest people I know lives in a shed, has one change of clothes. Poorest, but has so much joy. Not in what he has in material items, but what he has in God. His satisfaction is found in God. Nothing that you can buy will ever 
satisfy. So I want to ask you a third question now. This one's a little bit more personal. You ready? Are you satisfied in God? Our culture will only be satisfied with wealth. But what about you, church? Are you satisfied in God? St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you. The author of Ecclesiastes wrote this on the subject of money. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. Money will never satisfy the eternal longings of our heart. It simply can't. The Apostle Paul wrote this, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Again, the author of Ecclesiastes, I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners. Money cannot satisfy your heart, church, but it certainly can destroy your heart. And it has over and over and over again. So I plead with you, if you are feeling the pool of culture for bigger, better, more, you'll finally be satisfied. Then I want you to pray this prayer, Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Jim Elliott was a missionary to an unreached people in Ecuador. By the grace of God, he made the decision to go and evangelize a tribe, even though they were known to be hostile to outsiders, murdering every missionary who had gone before. Jim Elliott's fate was the same. But before he went on his mission, in response to the people who were telling him to settle down, to find a nice life in the States, or at least go to a tribe that wasn't so hostile, he responded with this holy reply. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. The apostle Paul wrote to a young church leader named Timothy, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Church, on the topic of wealth, as we're pressured on every side to be conformed to a culture that pursues the worship of and the acquisition of wealth, can I speak this word over you one more time with wealth on our minds? In the words of Jim Elliott, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You will lose the money in your wallet. You will lose the homes that you live in, but you will never lose God, for he will never lose you. Church, would you stand and worship with us this morning? Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christ Church, visit us online at cco.church.